welcome to Novel Finds Podcast, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. I'm Julia, and today we have a wonderful author. You may have heard of him because we've talked about him on our podcast before, but we have TJ Clune, author of House in the Cerulean Sea and Under the Whispering Door, and soon to come out in the lives of puppets. Hi, TJ. How are you? I am super good. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. Literally, I've just been so excited. Like, yeah. I have talked about this, but I'm still very excited to talk to you. That's awesome. I like it when people are excited. That makes my job that much easier. Well, I mean, when your books are as, as amazing as they are, it's hard not to be excited. Oh, thank you. Of course. Um, So, would you mind giving us a little synopsis of In the Lives of Puppets and then maybe a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about me first because that's what I'm really good at. All um, right. The, <laughs> I am a queer author of many, many books. Uh, most recently, though, people will know me from The House in the Cerulean Sea and Under the Whispering Door and my young adult trilogy series, The Extraordinaries. Um I am a full-time writer. I have been full-time since 2016 when I left my job in the wild and wonderful world of automobile insurance to do this full-time. And, you know, here we are, what is it now, seven years later? Yeah, seven years later this month because I left my job at the end of February 2016. So seven oh years gosh. later, I am still going on, man. And that's, that's Oh, that's it's, it's amazing. Insane. Isn't it? It's it's so freaking cool. It's so weird. And it, what's what's funny to me is I, I quit even before, you know, I got quote unquote called up to the big leagues with with Tor and McMillan. I was an indie, pu- indie published author for a number of years and I did well enough that I was able to support myself. But this is we're on a whole other level at this. Yeah. Moment. Oh, man, you leveled up. I know for real. But that's a, that's a bit about me. And and but we're here to talk about in the lives of puppets in the lives of puppets is a at a glance it is a queer retelling of carlo collodi's the adventures of pinocchio um and in that i wanted to explore the science fiction and fantasy genre as a whole so i took little bits and pieces from so many things that 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 i love about fantasy in 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 the lives of puppets it doesn't deal with puppetry, but with machines. And so there's a, a wide breadth of, of things to pull from. In this, you'll see hints of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You'll see Kubrick and Spielberg's AI. You will see just Asimov, all of these different places from books and movies and television, all these things that I grew up with, I wanted to put in a book. And if you are of a certain generation, if you are the the my age about 40 and you came came of age in the in the 80s or the 90s you will probably remember a a very traumatizing children's film called the brave little toaster and that is a a movie that like the land before time scarred many children and i love love that movie because it's about sentient household appliances coming to life going <laughs> yeah. on adventures and it gets really dark and scary it if you really don't, if you don't cry over what happens to lampy then oh my god <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen this movie um so i have not seen it but i've seen like the trailers for it or like yeah. previews and just like all right all right it's, it's it does start really cute but even the 
preview definitely like hints at the darkness yeah. but doesn't really get there. And then we won't talk about the sequel, The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, because that's not something that we need to discuss. At this okay, moment. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that was a thing. But what I love about, about Brave Little Toaster is the fact that it is like a fairy tale, but not the Disney-fied version, which a lot of people will know Pinocchio from. In like fairy tales, it is dark. It is, it is, there are, there are threads of darkness throughout. The original uh, Colodi's Pinocchio in his very first draft, he killed off Pinocchio. Pinocchio dies and that's the end of the story. And his editor came in and said, if you're writing a story for children, you can't continually make the children sad. So with that in mind, with his editor in mind, oh yeah, (laughs) with that in mind, he rewrote the story where Pinocchio then becomes a real boy. And I just find that absolutely fascinating that that editors, even back then, had that much power and control. And let's face it, editors 99.9% of the time are absolutely right when they tell us stuff like this. So (laughs) I just wanted to put all of it together into this big old mishmash and create this story about a family like you'd find in the house in the Cerulean Sea, like you'd find Mm -hmm. under the Whispering Door. But rather than going in the direction I went with those... I thought, what if this family was already happy and safe and whole? And I destroyed it. <laughs> and I took, yes. I took that away from them. So that way they had to step out of their little world, their little safety, and go into the, the wilds beyond and find out how the world actually is and what that means. I mean, I really liked that difference. It was, I mean, it's still found family, but then it's like, go it is going in the opposite direction but then you're like still finding your family and you're still with your family it was it's very cool yeah and it's it's you know with with somebody like linus from from the house in the cerulean sea or or wallace in under the whispering door they had to go to a different place to find where they belonged Mm -hmm. here in in the lives of puppets these people already have a place to belong but then something is taken from them so they need to get it back so that way they can go back to the way that their life was, the way that they felt safe and happy and whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And will it go back together the same way it was? Ooh, exactly. It's the question. It's the big question because, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. But after you go on a journey, like, you change. There's you always change. change. And does coming back to where you began feel the same? Or does it feel different because of the journey you went on and all the knowledge that you gained? Does it change where you come from too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you were were drafting this, um, you mentioned like from the outside, it looks kind of like Pinocchio, but with robots and androids. What was Pinocchio in the beginning of that draft? Did you have that idea after being like, okay, found family, happy, something is taken away, they have to go on an adventure and explore the world. Did Pinocchio immediately come to mind or did you have different stories? Well, I will I will say this. I've been I've been looking to do a fairy tale rewrite, I think ever since I finished The House in the Cerulean Sea. Because <laughs> the House in the Cerulean Sea has a very fairy tale like quality to it in that it could be anywhere and any when. And it could be, you know, it's this timelessness to it. And that it started me on this path into 
researching and looking at all the old fairy tales that I grew up with, the Disney-fied versions and then their originals. And I can't say that I settled on Pinocchio specifically. I had initially wanted to do something with Peter Pan and tell the story that way. But then it evolved into something a little different. And I kind of put that on hold because the idea that I had for a Peter Pan retelling would be more horror. It would mm-hmm. be more horror-based in in that there's this, this immortal child who keeps taking children away yes. to uh-huh. that. And so at, at that point, though, I wasn't ready for that kind of darkness. I wasn't ready to to dip my toe into horror. So what did I do instead? <laughs> I bought a Roomba vacuum cleaner. I bought oh a Roomba gosh. because I had seen them online and I was like, you know what I have in my house? Dog hair tumbleweeds that just blow across my floors. So why not? <laughs> why don't I get a Roomba? So I got a Roomba vacuum. And of course, just because I'm a human being and this is kind of what we do, I had to anthropomorphize it. So I got little googly Naturally. eyes and put little googly eyes on the top of it. And then I turn it on and allow it. And when Roombas or when vacuums like this turn on, they have to map out the house so they know mm-hmm. where they are and everything like that. And my <laughs> this little this little machine got stuck in a corner and it made this really weird, sad beeping sound. And I shit you not, this entire story exploded in my head. Oh um, my God. All because I bought a vacuum cleaner and put googly eyes on it, and it got stuck in a corner. And from there, I've never really had anything happen like that before. But from there, there was all of these, suddenly, all of these characters in my head. There was Rambo, who is a vacuum cleaner with anxiety disorder. There is Nurse Ratched, who's a nursing machine, who also happens to be sociopathic. There was Vic, who would become the main character, this young man who is an inventor and a tinkerer, because that's how he was raised. That's how he was taught by his father, Giovanni, who is not a human at all. And as a matter of fact, in this little group, in this little family, Victor is the only human. And so basically, the, the whole reason the story exists is because of capitalism and me wanting to buy a ra- vacuum cleaner. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, capitalism, for... Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> if that is the plus to capitalism, I will right. take it. Exactly. So on top of googly eyes, did you name your Roomba? Is your Roomba named Rambo? No, his name is Hank. Because oh, oh, <laughs> his, 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 his sad beeping sound also kind of sounded like an old man. So it was an old, so I had to go with an old man name. And my great uncle was named Henry, but he was called Hank for short. So I just named him Hank. All right. <laughs> that's so cool oh my yeah, God. I, I love that i love that so much <laughs> uh, okay so on top of there being fairy tale retelling and elements into or in the lives in in the lives of puppets um there's quite a bit of philosophy you have a lot of different philosophers quoted in your book um did you have to research that specifically or is that just something you know or is that like what you read in your spare time? Where um, did that element come from? 
I, I've always been interested in philosophy, even when I got a C in Philosophy 101 in community college. <laughs> in my in my first and only semester of community college, I took Introduction to Philosophy and I got a C. And that was okay because I'm mm-hmm. not very I was not a, a school-minded person. But I've always been interested in the way that that people have always wondered about why and how humanity works. What do we look at to, 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 to decide who is right, who is wrong, who, who gets to make these big decisions, who gets to create new branches of philosophy that no one's ever heard of before? There's, there's an old joke that goes, uh, the first rule of philosophy is that for every philosopher, there exists an equal and opposite philosopher. The second rule of philosophy is that both of them are wrong. And that is what I find so fascinating is because if there is a philosopher and he has or they or she has or they have a specific line of thinking, there is always going to be another philosopher who will be there to refute every single Mm -hmm. thing that they said line by line. So in the house in the Cerulean Sea, in Under the Whispering Door and in, in the Lives of Puppets, I do talk about philosophy quite a bit because philosophy to me is a part of humanity as much as knowledge and science and hope and fear and wonder because we always wonder about how things work so with with philosophy i i I try to read up on as much as i can does a lot of it go over my head absolutely but what I've come down to it is is two things that I believe um, kind of are the through lines from my book. So there's a branch of philosophy called uh, utilitarianism, and that revolves around the concept of the ends justifying the means, believing that the outcomes that the res- that the result of an action have are, are greater in value than the actual action itself. It is a consequence oriented philosophy, basically meaning that as long as the outcome is good, whatever it took to get there is fine, even if it was morally and ethically wrong. Mm-hmm. I, as a person, tend to describe to the idea of deontology, which states that both the actions and the outcome must be ethical. Greater weight is placed upon the action's morality, but also says that a wrong action does not make its outcome the same. So it's basically, this comes from Immanuel Kant, who basically, with deontology, tried to muddy the waters a little bit because he's saying, okay, yes, we want to make sure that the action that led to the result is ethical and moral. But if it's not, that doesn't mean the outcome is as bad. (laughs) So it's basically just a way of, of throwing this blanket statement on everything. But that's what philosophy is. You can get very specific or you can speak in generalities. And mm-hmm. I just, I find it fascinating. So with within the lives of puppets, I wanted to explore what does intent mean? So with Vic's journey, he is on a journey to take something back that was taken from him. So his, his action is the act itself of going on this journey, this adventure. So we have to ask then, is the outcome, what happens at the very end of this book or what happens throughout the book, is that moral? Is that ethical? And that I want to leave up to the reader to decide. As a reader, I, I think that it is. I think I think so. 
you think Vic's journey and what he does and where what he finds is moral and ethically correct? Oh, well, I think his actions mm-hmm. are for the most part, I think, ethically correct. It gets it, once he gets to the place that he's going. So I'm mm-hmm. going to keep it vague. Once he gets to the place that he's going, I think he he is it definitely weighted by like the decisions that he has to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that him trying to find the best way into it is is ethical. And I'm just really glad that he has friends with him, too, that can also right. voice their opinions on it. And speaking of philosophy and and his friends, what I love and and what I want people to pick up on is that Nurse Ratched and Rambo, the two machines who who arguably are or inarguably I should say are Victor's best friends, mm-hmm. they act as if you know the Disney version of Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket, or if you know the Carlo Collodi's version, which is the talking cricket, but basically it's the same thing. They are acting as two sides of his conscience. They are acting as his mm-hmm. id and his ego. They are acting as a human who can be scared and fearful like Rambo, or that they can be somewhat bloodthirsty like Nurse Ratchet is. And these are two of the two of the voices that he hears, two of the voices that he converses with that help guide his actions Mm -hmm. but then they're also their own characters too like they're not just vic's uh age and ego they're also they're also like their own beings which i think and making making their own decisions Mm -hmm. on being that in addition to helping victor they are consciously making their own decisions whether it be through evolution or mimicry of humanity and i think Mm -hmm. that's fascinating Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. Especially because, I mean, Nurse Ratchet is just, she is so bloodthirsty. She's just so like <laughs> sarcastic about wanting to murder and maim people. I think that's hilarious. But then she'll be like, in in <laughs> making her empathy protocol and just yeah. like turning that on. And she's like, they're there. And then she turns it right back off and is like, are you good now? And <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for, uh, for people who people probably know the name Nurse Ratched and, and where that comes from and and who it is named after. But in this case, Nurse Ratched stands for Nurse Registered Automaton to Care, Heal, Educate and Drill, which I have to say, in my honest opinion, is probably one of the best acronyms ever created. It is. So you are welcome, world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On behalf of the world, we thank you. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and trust trust me, when when this book comes out, I know it's going to be kind of like what happened with the house in the Cerulean Sea and Under the Whispering Door. I'm going to be like, look, here is how. Here is Victor. Here's this big, huge world and this whole adventure that we're going on. And then there's going to be people who are going to be like, if anything happens to Nurse Ratched or Rambo, I will come for the author. Because these are my people. They are my entire personality now. And I will die for them. And I can't wait for that. <laughs> I would die for them. Like yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah, yeah. If anything happened to Rambo, I would have been very upset. And well, then we would have. Oh, yeah. There there, there was a very vague. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that now because that could get into spoiler territory. Spoiler no, it's okay. But Mine was like vaguely was spoilery. Mean. But like he gets tossed around. 
it gets tossed around. Uh, Everyone gets tossed around and it is a dangerous world for delicate robots. It is. It absolutely is. And the people that they meet along the way, they have to discern what their intentions are and if they're good. And because what I loved is, you know, I got to pick and choose who I wanted to pull from the original, the adventures of Pinocchio. So we get to see these people that I, I wanted to, to include, to have their own impact on this world, such as the coachman or the doorman or the, the, the ruler, the, the enchanter of dreams themselves, the blue fairy Mm -hmm. who, who has their own version of their philosophy that they believe in, which we won't get into here, but you'll be very surprised. (laughs) I was very surprised. Yeah. But it was cool. I, I, yeah, I appreciated so it. I, I liked I lo- the surprise. I love, I love the Blue Fairy. Mm-hmm. So speaking of all of the characters, now that we've talked about a lot of them, who was your favorite character to write? And was this one the one you relate to the most? No. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I could say Rambo is my favorite or Nurse Ratched, Vic, Hap geo the the Mm -hmm. main the main crew i could say that they they're my favorites but honestly there are two others in this novel who are my favorite for very specific reasons there are every character and i'm going to leave this up to the reader to find out what it is about the main characters but every character in this book that has page time is based on a specific musical performance the coachman is my version of gerard way from my chemical romance and the song the black parade if you know the song and you know who the coachman is in this world, they sync up because of just, I, I, I suggest anybody who does not know the song to go and oh listen my to the Black Parade. And so that way you can get an idea of who the coachman is. And then there's the Blue Fairy, who is based on two performances, mainly because I can't decide which one is fits better. The first is Annie Lennox performing Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Or they could possibly be Rihanna in Disturbia because they both have that same kind of energy found in the yeah. blue fairy. And, and in my heart of hearts, if this were ever to be adapted into a, a feature, I would all but demand that this be a musical a la Moulin Rouge where they take, re, they take re, songs already created and repurpose yes. them to put them in here. Because you, you could imagine the blue fairy in in their chambers descending basically singing rihanna disturbia Mm -hmm. as they Mm -hmm. fall from the ceiling like that would just be the neatest thing in the world but that's probably also why i don't make movies (laughs) okay okay but but really though if it was a feature that just automatically has to be a thing now like could you imagine could you imagine gerard way as the coachman singing the black parade well, now I want to. I know. <laughs> That's what I want, too. Ah, okay. All right. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to reread this and just yeah, look at all of that out. now. Yeah. See if you can figure out who the other, the main characters are supposed to represent. Ah, okay. All right. Um, that being said, do you have any favorite lines or sections from In the Lives of Puppets that you want to share? Yeah, there, there's, there's, I'm not going to say it specifically because I want people to, to read it for themselves, but going back to what we were talking about philosophy, there is a very, very, in my opinion, lovely conversation 
between the characters of Victor and the coachman about what it means to be human. And the idea of, of philosophy springing from that humanity. And it's a very hard conversation, but it's very illuminating because mm-hmm. I think that Victor at that moment in time begins to realize just how special humans are, that their humanity, whatever it causes, whether it be happiness or destruction, there's nothing like it in all the world. And that is both a good thing and a bad thing. And I think that that scene specifically really cements home for Victor and the reader just what the stakes are for humanity. Oh, yeah. That that scene is a very, it is a serious scene. Like, yeah. and not one that you really expect out of the coachman, I don't think. Right, like, exactly. Once you meet the coachman and then it's, and then they have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, because the coachman, you know, it starts, he starts off as something different and then has his own evolution. And I think it's extraordinary to see that happen in real time because, Mm -hmm. you know, this book, this book has a big wider story happening along the edges of it, but I'm not necessarily concerned with that story. I'm concerned about this more immediate story, this small story about small people doing great Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So your books feature a lot of the found family trope and other ones that are really big, just like in real life in the LGBTQ plus community. And you also just have amazing books that have so many different representations, which I love. What would you say is your favorite trope to write? Found family is is obviously a big part of almost everything that I write. And mm-hmm. I I know people think of it as a trope because it is. And tropes are tropes for a reason because tropes tend to stem from real life. Mm-hmm. Found family isn't just a trope. It isn't just something to make your heart feel warm and happy and, and whatnot. Because for most, a lot of us in the queer community, found family is our reality because mm-hmm. we didn't get the love and and support from those who should have been given who should have been given that to us without question. We didn't get to have a mother or a father or or guardian or grandparents, aunts, uncles. We didn't get to have that that showed that we were loved, that we were that we were safe, that we were protected. So we had to go out. We had to get escape from those situations to make our own families. My family is made up of my brother, my sister, her husband and son, and the rest of the people in my family are my friends. I don't know a queer person in my life that doesn't have a story to tell about their found family. And that says a lot about the queer community that we get shoved and kicked and spat upon and derided in the news told we're groomers or pedophiles that were indoctrinating Mm -hmm. children and you wonder why we don't want to talk to people like that you wonder why we don't want to go with the adage that blood is thicker than water do you do you know why we don't put ourselves in those positions because we're tired because we're scared because we're angry so found family to me isn't a trope it is a way of life. It is a part of my existence and has been ever since I was a kid. And while I appreciate people loving the found family trope, 
and wanting to read more about it. I'd like to remind people that it comes from a very real place that isn't always sunshine and rainbows. It is a lot of times born of trauma and pain and anger. And I don't like to sugarcoat that, but I also like to remind people that there are people out there, people waiting to find you, to love you, to hold you, to protect you, because that's the way we all should be. I never understood parents who who have a child, make a decision to have a child, bring that child into this world, and then that child decides that they're non-binary or trans or queer, and then that love is gone? How does that work? That doesn't make sense to me. Why? why Right. Love is not conditional. Yeah. Right. Love is not transactional. Love is not something that that is, is a right. It is something that needs to be earned. The same with respect. And if we don't get that love, if we don't get that respect, and we keep trying to facilitate that, if we keep trying to to do our best to get that, and we're not getting anything in return, why do you think we would keep trying? I don't understand why people think that we should keep trying. I, I really don't. If you, you you hit a dog enough, eventually it's going to bite back. And that's what I think the queer community has come to. We've been derided enough, so we've gone out to make our own world. Mm-hmm. But that's also kind of what I love about your books is because while found family does have like that that darker side to it, at least in your books, they are are still a nice like cozy place that you can be. Like once they've found the family, you're like, okay, there's there is a place where I can also find family, which I just really love. Yeah. And and I think of it like this. Imagine being underwater and you, you're running out of breath. Yeah, you, you break through that surface, you breach the surface and you just exhale and there's this relief that courses through you, even as your body relaxes, that's Mm -hmm. what it feels like to find a home. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're drowning and then maybe somebody pulls you up or maybe you pull yourself up. But once you breach that surface and you take that breath, you know, you're home. Oh, all right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So moving slightly into the same topic, but like not found family as a trope just writing tropes in general, do you have any that you specifically like to read about? Are there any that when you read a book, you're just like, oh, yes, give me more? Yes. So I'm probably going to, well, if you if you know my reading habits or you know what I like to consume, then this probably will make sense. But for others who don't know this about me, it'll probably be a little surprising. But I am a horror junkie. I love horror novels. I love horror movies, television shows, video games. And there is one specific trope found in horror that if I find out is part of the story, I will drop everything just to consume that piece of media. And that is, oh no, a group of people or a family or friends are drawn a road trip and they drive into a town where everything is weird and different. And oh no, now they can't leave this town. And oh God, now there's monsters and people are dying. I love the trope of going to a small town, finding that small town is so weird and off and dangerous. And then that's when all the scary stuff happens. I love that. There's a TV show that just came out uh, last year. The second season's about to start. It's called From, and it's on, oh my God, I can't even remember what streaming service it's on, but it stars Harold Perrinal, the guy from Lost and Romeo and Juliet. 
And it's basically people from all over the United States are driving on vacation or road trips or whatever. And mm-hmm. each of them comes across a fallen tree in the middle of the road, forcing them to take a side road. And everyone ends up in this same small town and nobody can leave. And there are monsters in the woods. That is like my catnip. That is this. If that were drugs, I would consume them <laughs> because it is that cool to me. I just love that idea. And I hope oh I gosh. hope one day I get to write that story too. Okay. All right. Well, you do have like a Peter Pan thing yeah. in the back of your mind. Right. Yeah, for real. And think of that. It's like all the kids get take to Neverland and, and the Isle of the Lost Boys, uh-huh. except nobody can leave. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. For real. <laughs> um, okay. Can I suggest a book to you if you haven't read it yet? Yeah. They're um, Winterset Hollow. Winter Set Hollow. Who wrote it? Yes. It's by Jonathan Edward Durham. Uh-huh. And it is about like this group of friends and other people. They don't really know them, but they all like ferry to this island to do like a celebration of this dead author. He has like this famous book that has a celebration day and they're ferrying to the island to like go celebrate the celebration day on the island where the author lived. Mm-hmm. And then they get to his estate and like the characters from the book are real. And it takes <laughs> okay. a turn. It takes a turn. That is my jam. That is absolutely my jam. So I am going to um get that as soon as we're done. <laughs> yes, 100 percent I hope you like I talked I talked to him like a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And um it was it was a very good book. I think you'll love okay. it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely get that then. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. We're gonna wind back into <laughs> into your book. Um, what Since you're a full-time writer, what is a day in the life for you when you're working on your latest project? Oh boy. So I am a, a, an extreme morning person in that I have insomnia. So that means I'm usually awake at five or six o'clock in the morning and I will take my dog for a long walk and then I will sit down in front of my computer and Hope stuff happens for the next few hours. (laughs) Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But I work from usually six or seven in the morning till about writing wise till about noon. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I'm done earlier. Sometimes it goes if I'm in in a really good zone, I'll go on later. But I don't I don't allow myself to go longer than usually four, five, six hours at writing because you need to stop. You need to recharge. Yeah. You need to, you need to take a step back you need because to eat if you something. don't, right. And if you, if you're not, if you're not taking care of yourself and you're getting tired, then your story is going to not be that great. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been reading something I've written like the days before going, wow, wow, this is really good. This is really, oh, here's where I got tired. Cause now it's bad. Oh. <laughs> it's like, I can't do that. So I, I tend to, to write in the mornings and of course, since that is not the only aspect of my job, the rest of the day is filled with marketing and editing and emails. And because if there's one thing that you will learn about being an author, especially with traditional publishing, is that um, you will never have an empty email box. That's just mm-hmm. how it is. I mean, I got done this morning. 
I went and did my emails and I was down to three and that was three hours ago. And now I have 27 unread emails that I haven't gotten to yet. Oh, <laughs> so, <wow>. Yay. <laughs> so that's, that's the big part of my life. In fact, I will probably say that writing probably isn't the, the biggest thing that I, the, the most I have to do. Usually it's everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when I start getting a little run a little frazzled or ragged because I need to have my writing time in order to yeah. to function with the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, if I haven't read a book for a few days, I start getting really like just all over the place. Me too. And th- th- that's why I would, I hear people say, no, I don't like to read or I haven't read a book in years. I'm like, how are you alive? Right? Like, <laughs> how, how, are you what do you do to unwind? Like, how do you just sit and what do you, you do? For like yeah. the last hour before you go to bed, before you're sleeping, you're not sitting in your bed reading a book. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, right? Oh my gosh. Um, so with all of your writing, do you have any authors that have really inspired you or continue to inspire you? Absolutely. Um, Diana Wynne Jones, uh, who uh, in the '80s released a very famous book called Howl Mo- Howl's Moving Castle. I think if you're looking for the definition of cozy fantasy, that is one of the best, if not the best. And if you've only seen the Studio Ghibli version of uh, Howl's Moving Castle, then I would suggest reading the book because (laughs) the howl in the book is not the same as the howl in the movie. And it's all the better for it. I love him in the book and in the movie, but the book version is my favorite. Um, Like, a product of my time, like many children in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I grew up reading Stephen King at too mm. young an age. Um, mm-hmm. But I have, he is my all-time favorite author. I have read everything he's written multiple times. There, every couple of years ago, every couple of years or so, I will get into a mindset where I'm like, well, I guess I need to read his reread his entire library. And so that's sometimes what I do. Um just just for the simple fact that he is in his 70s now and still releasing two books a year mm-hmm. may we may we all be able to be so prolific when we get to his age um some contemporary authors though that i am very very happy with what they're doing in this space you have rika aoki who wrote a light from uncommon stars which is one of the best queer novels ever in my opinion um, you have Anna Marie McLemore, who wrote Lake Lore, uh, that came out in 2021. And I think it's the defining book of a generation for, for neurodiverse queer people. It is remarkable. Um, and there is a book coming out, um, a young adult book that I got to read early. It is called Blood Debts, and it's by Terry Benton Walker. And it is. I have that on my shelf. I'm reading it early. Oh too. my god! It is so good. Oh, I got. I got to. I got to blurb. I got to provide a blurb for it. And look, it's not his first book. I, I was talking with him uh, a few months ago when we were at the same event. It's not his first book. I think it's like his sixth or his seventh. It's his young adult debut, though, and it's his debut with a, a mm-hmm. traditional publisher. When I heard that, it was. I initially thought it was his first book ever. And then he corrected me and I'm still mad at him because how the hell can you be that good at writing, whether it be your first or your seventh book, my seventh book, nowhere near as good as, as blood debts. I am, I am so, 
so excited for him and so over the moon for the people that get to read this book about black people and and the magic that they are are working with and the fact that in this world it's it's almost like a darker side to the house in the cerulean sea because in blood debts magic is regulated like guns are and it's just a fascinating concept it's so fascinating to see the haves and the Mm have-nots and and what happens with that and i i told rika aoki before uh, a light from uncommon stars came out that her book was going to do big things. And it went on to be nominated for all these prestigious awards. I told Terry Benton Walker, the same thing. Your book is going to do big things. I guarantee it. I am so excited for people to read this book. And it comes out the same month as in the lives of puppets in April. It comes out like, think like on April 14th, something like that. So keep your eyes out for blood debts. It's Mm -hmm. remarkable. Amazing. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to read it now. That's that and Howl's Moving Castle are both like on my TBR. So oh, I'm about to push those up. That's so good. <laughs> so good. So we just talked about a bunch of books, but do you have an all-time favorite book? Yeah. Um it, it honestly will depend upon the day you ask me, but since mm-hmm. you're asking me on this very day, I probably have to go with two. I'm gonna go with two because I think okay. they show both sides of me. First is a book called Boy's Life by Robert McCammon. It came out in the 80s. And a lot of people give Robert McCammon shit because he's kind of, they, they argue that he's derivative of Stephen King, that he he did, Stephen King did The Stand. So then Robert McCammon did Swan Song, which is basically the same kind of book. You know, granted, King does not have the the be all and end all when it comes to post-apocalyptic fiction but there's a lot of similarities that you see however a boy's life is basically i i i would think there's a blurb on the cover of one of the covers i have so many old versions in this book that basically calls it mccammon's prince of tides which i think is absolutely apt it is about a boy growing up in the 60s in a small town in alabama and it deals with with the magic of this town but also the evils of men and in that racism plays a huge part in this novel and bigotry and what that looks like in sixties, 1960s America, but also in mm-hmm. 1960s Alabama, which as we know mm-hmm. was a, not mm-hmm. a very good place to be at the time. If you were a person of color, the other book, and I think it's probably the most perfect book ever written. And I think I've spent half of my career trying to write the same type of story and this is probably going to blow a couple of people's minds, but that is Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. I think Where the Wild oh. Things Are is the most perfect piece of fiction ever written. I think it's one of the greatest books ever published in the English language. And to top it all off, it got a film adaptation by Spike Jones that I, 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 I consider them almost incomparable because to say it was as good as the book does something to the book that I don't really kind of like, but to say mm-hmm. it was better than the book is is not true. There, it is probably the best adaptation of a book that I have ever seen on screen, and I, I don't know what it is. I, I read that book like many people did as a kid, but something with it stuck with me because I wanted to be Max. I wanted to escape from this world that I did not like, and I wanted to find monster friends in a forest and that feeling has stayed with me forever so 
when you think about books like In the Lives of Puppets or The House in the Cerulean Sea, Mm -hmm. Under the Whispering Door, or my Green Creek series, which is being republished by Tor this summer, this basically me wanting to write where the wild things are. I love that though. Yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) I love that book. I love that book. I love that film. And I, I, I don't care how old you are, be you young or old, everybody should read that book. And if you haven't read it in a very long time, go read it again to see how yeah. it feels for you. All right. All right. Um, well, we're coming down to the end of our, our chat. Do you have any final thoughts for readers or just in general? Yeah. Um, I'm going to warn you now that um, I am, it is within my power and a power that I exercise completely that I am going to make you cry over a vacuum cleaner. I am going to make you cry over a vacuum cleaner named Rambo who has who has anxiety and a basically the heart and soul of a golden retriever. Mm-hmm. So if you are not ready to cry over a normal household appliance, then don't read this book. But if you are, trust me when I say you will love him and he will break your heart. Yes, I I can confirm I did cry <laughs> while reading this book. I love that. I love but it was a it was a good cry. I mean, it, it, see, it, I mean, I made it worth I it. break hearts, but I always try to put it back together. Yeah. They, they may not be in the same shape that they once were, but you know what? That just shows that you've survived. Exactly. Um. So, where can people find you if they want to see and or hear? more from you yeah you can check out my website tjclunebooks.com which has all my appearances um i'll be going on a week-long tour in april and then a second part in a week-long tour in may for in the lives of puppets so i hope to see a lot of people there i'll be also jumping over the pond in may to do some touring in the uk so i will be there too um twitter you can find me as tj clune i just post book updates there because Twitter is a garbage fire that needs to be put out. And but mostly I post on Instagram and Instagram stories because um, I need an outlet for my weirdness. So if you want to come see pictures of my dog and me uh, putting my shower thoughts into Instagram stories, there you go. It's totally good. You may question why you've chosen to follow me and you may question, is TJ Clune on drugs? And the answer may be maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a fun time. I follow you on Instagram. Your story about catching your dog's pee in a cup was really funny. Yeah, Yeah. because that's my life. That is, you know, people think I'm this big New York Times award-winning, best-selling author. But frankly, I'm just the type of person. And I am. But But frankly, I am the type of person who will go online on Instagram and tell stories about how I had to catch my dog's pee for the vet and the trials and tribulations of trying to do that. Because it's it scary. was a journey. It was a journey. I yeah, try to tell that to me. I was the one that was living it. I was living <laughs> that, that that pee dog life. And uh, you got to you know it is like what it the is. memoirs love, of the pee right, dog oh life. God, no, no, no. <laughs> I get sick of me enough as it is. I don't think I want to spend the entire time writing a book about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's fair. Um, thank you so much for coming on, TJ. I had a blast talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoys In the Lives of Puppets on April 25th. 
Yeah. And then they can catch this episode, I'm pretty sure, on April 23rd as a cute little sneak peek for the book coming out. That's perfect. All right. Well, we heckin' did it, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard and want to support the show, share it with your other bookish friends and family members. And if your podcast app has ratings, please take a minute to rate and review the show. I'm off to read the next book in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events for my monthly Patreon series, A Summary of Unfortunate Events, which is a middle-of-the-pool dive into the series we all know and love. And if you'd like to hear it, subscribe to our Patreon by following the link in the Novel Finds bio on Instagram, which you should totally be following if you're not already. Thanks again for being a novel friend. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.